Now, this is where your listeners are going to be really in a treat because I'm going to give them the three secrets to psychological well-being or a happy life, the secret of life. This is Intelligent Rebellion. Howdy, howdy, folks. This is Ria. Welcome to episode 13 of the Intelligent Rebellion podcast. Today's episode, we have Sean Cronin, a self-described guitar-playing powerlifter who loves ACDC and blues rock. Sean is a rebel with a cause, and he has taken a revolutionary approach to supporting and empowering injured workers to engage in their own return-to-work process. And like most, he stumbled into the workers' compensation industry, not too sure of where it was going to take him. In the episode, Sean gives us a crash course in self-determination theory, and he shares real-life, first-hand experience and success stories from using this theory. He is candid about life as an insurance claims manager and challenges compensation and rehab industry to improve the diversity of its professionals, particularly during the hiring process. Sean and I share tips for newbies entering the world of compo, and we both definitely agree that sharing our knowledge and building a support network is key to success and longevity in this industry. The birds started to chirp during this episode, which could only, only be seen as a sign of hope, optimism, and of new beginnings. So let's get to it. This is Sean Cronin. Hello. Hey, Sean. How are you going? I'm well. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this. I really appreciate it. Very, very first question. It is the Intelligent Rebellion podcast. Would you mm. consider yourself to be rebellious? I'd probably say that I can be a rebel with a cause. <laughs> I think there is a point where people will rebel against certain things they see in the industry, not necessarily a destructive or destructive force, I think it can be constructive as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that rebellion might not be total opposition or total defiance. It might be saying, well, this can be done better and finding a way to do it and how do you work within the um, take advantage of the confines of the legislation to get to get things done and how can you, know, you read between the lines and advocate for certain things to be done in a way that might not have been done before. It's not breaking the rules. It's just knowing, knowing how far you can actually use them. Yeah. Um, to, to get an outcome for for everyone. So, Sean, you and I have known each other for oh, a couple of years now. I feel like I've known you forever, though. Do you want to <laughs> introduce yourself to anyone who might be listening, my millions and millions of listeners? Oh, I struggle with this. I hate introducing myself. <laughs> Look, you know, I'm a guitar-playing powerlifter who, who ended up in workers' comp quite by accident. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably it. Live on the live on the lovely central coast with um, my family, wife, and a daughter. When I'm not doing workers' comp, I'm either in the gym or trying to work out how to play guitar, go to gigs, that sort of stuff. So, what type what of music? Oh, look at the moment, probably blues, blues rock. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite. So, yeah, yeah. So, if I was to flick through your CD collection, <laughs> if you still have one of those, um, <laughs> what am I going to find? Like, actually, it's a bit more. Yeah, you probably find a lot of ACDC. <laughs> <laughs> so bluesy rocky yeah, yeah a bit of the harder stuff there acdc is probably my favorite all-time band but yeah blues wise bb king and you mentioned that you kind of fell into workers comp what, what was that journey like stumbling yeah. into this industry so i think i started workers comp in 2010 before that i'd actually been in it for about a decade 
And I left IT because I just found it just wasn't fulfilling. You know, it's hard to find a stable career and they probably didn't value also in IT what I valued. I think around 2010, they were experimenting with case managers having a bit more of a customer service background, which I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I joined um, EML. I just wanted to get out of IT. I was happy to um, take a pay cut, lose a you know, do something different. And I just said, all right, let's give this a go. Um, and I had no idea what I was in for. Maybe if I did, who knows what would happen. <laughs> yeah, I started with email in 2010 as trainee case manager, became a case manager, senior team leader, very standard career path, moved into various roles, a bit of project work. Last role there was an IMA, so Injury Management Advisory style role. Left email after nine years to go and do something, just felt like I needed to do something different and ended up doing a project with an employer services company who had some funding from my care to look at different approach to return to work. So it was like a two-year project, which I think had a really innovative approach to helping injured workers return to work, uh, especially around the, the topic of motivation, which I'm <laughs> sure we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah. Once the um, COVID hit, that sort of put paid to that. And once the funding, um, our funding expired, there's obviously no real incentive to go any further. It just was not going to work um, as it required a lot of face-to-face contact. Yeah, it could work by Zoom or Teams or whatever. Yeah, it just sort of made it a lot harder. Plus, with the way um, yeah, the employment market was, mm-hmm. then that also then impacted what we were doing. So your project ended and then actually took about half a year off just for like a wonder break. So, yeah, yeah just did a f- kept, kept my options open put a few feelers out there, flirted with, should I say flirted, <laughs> with a few <laughs> few different um, organisations, but nothing came. And then um, you moved into consulting with a broker about August last year, so 2021. Yeah, you're, I mean, the only place that I think you haven't been would be sort of within a rehab provider, but that's purely bureaucracy. Uh, that That's purely <clears> because, you know, you don't have the, the paperwork to do that. You're more than capable and I, you're probably going to be a lot oh, better than you. I'll, yeah, you are. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the thing, right? Like you've got so much experience, you're really personable, you know how the system works and you're far ahead of most graduates or graduates, even people who've been two or three years into it that mm-hmm. we see in rehab. And at the moment, it's just that we've managed to go to school and copy really well and got a piece of paper at the end of sitting in lectures for three or four years. But I think where I want to go back to, I get a lot of questions from people and we we shit on claims uh, consultants all the time. Uh, it's just sort of you guys have always been the scapegoats when it comes to in the insurer space. Mm. I, I really want to dive into that a little bit, Sean. I mean, what's it really like to be an insurer or a claims manager? Like Return to Work Matters put out their article um, and that mm. person was anonymous for the record. We don't know who this person is. So anyone who's asking us, we don't know who this person is. So they are anonymous. But from your experience working there for nine years, give us a really good rundown of what your experience was like. Oh, look, I think when I first started, I, was, I started off in the tail section, mm-hmm. but we had all the five-year-plus claims. Yeah. So we were sitting on a 100-claim portfolio quite regularly. 60 or 70 was supposed to Back then, the legislation was a lot different. We didn't have work caps. We had a lot of court awards where essentially someone can sit forever on a court award because that was just so hard to challenge. So it was quite busy, but then, hate to say it, but we could park and pay a lot of claims because it was quite intense. Um, yeah, there's still a lot of turnover because I think you're dealing with people who are quite vulnerable. 
and obviously, you know, after a while, when I was a team leader, I managed um, front-end teams as well. So I think a life of a case manager is quite frantic and quite hectic. It's, it's quite intense. You have lots of competing priorities. So you obviously have the worker to try and make sure they are getting what they need. You've got an employer jumping up and down. I want to say that some, some employers are obviously very good with how they look after the workers. Um, and then you've got internal KPIs to meet. I think there's a myth that they get incentivized to close claims or to um, shut claims down. And that's mm-hmm. that's not the case. It's, it's based on return to work duration. So that's the biggest measure, especially in the front end, pre-injured duties. That is probably for a front end case manager the best thing. There's no incentive to decline a claim. Maybe back 10, 12 years ago, I was a bit more like the wild old west when things were done that maybe shouldn't be done. What I'm seeing through is, you know, claims aren't being declined. Just what you'll see is that you've got seven days to decide on liability. It, it either be peeled mm-hmm. or accepted. Even a reasonable excuse is no longer. And I would say there were times back in my days that you'd get pressure to apply RE when it probably wasn't within the spirit of the legislation. And so I think that's improved. I think that's helped case managed, but I still think they have a lot of work and it's something I don't think an insurer has really worked out how to design the role. You still have admin duty. So as a return to work matters, anonymous person said, they've got admin to do and that can take up a quarter of the day. They've got other stuff often around internal metrics and what they need to do. And then the other half a day is actually doing case management. And as you know, you can have but one claim that becomes an issue. It becomes a priority because one thing happened on a day and all of a sudden you need to manage through that. Yeah, and your whole day is gone. The case managers are are under pressure. I think the insurers forget a lot of what works. Mm -hmm. There's a high turnover, about 20%, I think was quoted. That might have changed. Do the math for me. It's like for every 100 people, you've got, what, 20 leaving? Yeah, you're losing 20. So, and look, we know there was some, there was a bad period a couple of years back with the changeover to the new eye care model. So, my, my question to sort of as we lead into that is yeah. where does it tend to go pear shaped for frontline claims managers, for the humans who are actually making these decisions? I think it's just um, the training and support. I think they're mm-hmm. th- often thrown into it. Um, as I said before, people are quite vulnerable. If the guidance isn't there about how to deal with people who are struggling with their injury and you start applying you know, ticker box methods or just going through a checklist of what to do, you, know, you, you, you can lose your human touch. I think that's what's happening is that if case managers aren't staying long, it means mm-hmm. other case managers are getting more work, which means they're being probably overworked mm-hmm. and then they don't stay too long. And, and then and then they never progress to have experience to be able to learn the skills yeah. they need to be able to do their job in mm-hmm. a very, humanized way yeah is that fair okay. i'm obviously doing a lot of case managers now and i'm finding so there's some really good ones out there but there are also ones who probably need a bit more guidance and experience a good question is what what do you need to be a case manager mm-hmm. and i think there's a few differing opinions about that i think some people just talk about having allied health experience and that sort of thing and i would say and i'm biased because i came in the workers comp with no allied health no sort of any sort of background that you normally have but you need to have i say life experience that's not a bad thing and empathy from there if your training's good you could have and diversity as well um and that also means diversity of experience as well as diversity in, in background as i think that really helps i think that's undervalued mm-hmm. in that yeah you can have a team full of say um people free have backgrounds yeah but that might necessarily be a good team or a good case manager where you have a team of different people who are different backgrounds ages 
and so on, you actually might have a better team because people can share that life experience and sometimes requires a bit of experience. Like how do you deal with, say, a 56-year-old bloke who's all worked in labouring his whole life? He's probably never going to go back to that job. You pick up, say, a 38-year-old woman who's injured, has a family, and I think that's what we forget about in workers' conference. Injured workers are coming from these different backgrounds. We think about having diversity on the claims teams. And I think that's a really good way of um, how it should be approached. I think the, the pool that they select case managers from is too narrow. A lot of the stuff that I've done is diversity by design. Yeah. I think it's important to have all those different people, experiences, race, cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. I think mm. all that is really important because, as you said, you could have a portfolio of 50 claimants, all of different backgrounds. Oh, definitely. And I always do a little bit of pushback with the empathy type stuff because well, I see what empathy is and it's, it's very pure definition is trying to walk in somebody else's shoes. And I just mm. don't think that's ever gone going to be possible because you just will never be able to do that. And I think then we move to compassion and we move to an abundance of compassion. You can always create a space for somebody and be kind and compassionate to them because we can't pretend uh, that we know what somebody is going through. I'll never, ever know what an injured worker has gone through or is currently going through. And I think sometimes we we expect that from ourselves, but as rehab professionals, you never will. How about we just create a space for them to be, to, to talk to us, to tell us what their needs are. And then we can then use the system to try to build that support structure. Exactly. Yeah. And when we did the project Junction Fire Care um, yeah. after left DML, I had the opportunity to sit down with a lot of injured workers and mm-hmm. have a very different conversation about return to work. Yeah. And it really opened my mind to to how injured workers are living. Um, and I think it's something that we tend to forget. We, we look at reports. So we have our NTD report, the IME, the specialist report, the physio report, the rehab reports. That's how we measure progress or that's how we work out what to do. Whereas sometimes I think we fail to sit down with injured workers and go, what's really going on in your life? Obviously, there are limits to what support can be provided. How can we improve the system or revolutionise the compensation industries? How to deal with these non-compensable issues is the term we all use. But how do do we deal with it and how do we support, how do we find supports? And, yeah, we did things and we found like some people just needed 20 bucks. You know, the weekly benefits don't go far in Western Sydney anymore for rent that sort of stuff, it starts building up. And once they hit the 80%, if they've, you know, we're dealing with people who've been compo for about 12 to 24 months, it can start wearing down. Tell us more about the program that you did yeah. have, which unfortunately, I think it's unfortunate that hasn't mm. received any further funding because it certainly does address the things that someone like myself, a rehab consultant, tends to not really look into. So where was your point of difference there? How did the program work? And then if you want to give us really good success stories as a result of that. The project was designed to look at a different approach to return to work. So we're operating outside the usual system that rehab my employee. And we're using a system that was developed by the company I work for. They used it in employer services in Queensland. And it was based around a, a theory of motivation called self-determination theory. Now, this is where your listeners are going to be really in a treat because I'm going to give them the three secrets to psychological well-being or a happy life, the secret <laughs> of life. Um, so three components of self-determination theory, and we won't go into the sub-theories. It's quite a 700-page textbook you can read on it. There are three things that people need for psychological well-being. The first thing is um, autonomy, so the ability to find their own way. Uh, competency, the ability that whatever they're going to do, they're going to feel successful or the feeling that they're going to feel successful 
when they set out to do something. And the third one is relatedness. And that's just having the supports around you, feeling that you are supported in what you're doing. And what that does is it creates intrinsic motivation. Workers' comp, we tend to focus on extrinsic motivation, carrots and sticks to get people to do things. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work. It might work for a bit, but once the carrot or stick is taken away, there's no foundation to sustain that motivation. Where intrinsic motivation is you're doing something because you feel there's value in doing mm-hmm. it. So the autonomy part, I think something that we neglect in workers' comp is that we apply the same template to everybody. Yeah, it's like there's this highway and everybody has to yeah. get onto this highway. So autonomy, we took a different approach and we didn't use a vocational assessment. We just would sit down with the work and we had some tools and that, but we actually found if we had the right conversation, we often just ask the question, what do you want? Mm-hmm. And often I want to go back to work. What do you see that being? And some of them would never go back to a fringe role, which is obviously a difficult conversation, but we'll start working through what they want to do. And what we would do is then, okay, well, let's start seeing what's reasonable. No one's going to ever say, well, I was a truck driver, so I want to fly planes. Mm-hmm. That's never going to happen, which is the choices weren't extreme for one thing or the other. But I probably got a few examples, um, a few of the success stories that we had. And one was a lovely Sri Lankan lady and she had been working in a warehouse mm-hmm. at a council receivable background. And she was happy to go back at that. However, COVID hit and we started seeing in the job market that accounts, basic account receivable roles needed a degree in five years experience. All the employers were just taking advantage of the amount of people who were looking for work. So she said, how about childcare? So we looked into some roles and she had a background of doing some help with her kids when they were at school. Mm-hmm. So we used that and we also would look for a role where you could enter as a trainee. This probably would never have been covered by a vocational assessment, mm-hmm. but we just focused on that. And she was good at interviews and we just tweaked her resume slightly to accentuate some of the skills. We found a role in a childcare provider. Yeah. She submitted a resume, spoke to her a couple of days. I said, how'd you go with that role? I haven't heard back. I said, give him a call. Didn't hear back from her for 24 hours. When she rang me, says, I just did my first day. <laughs> <laughs> when we finished up the project, they had given her a full-time role and put her into the course to yeah. do her Cert 3 in childcare. That's how we found work for one person. Another was uh, he was a truck driver. He was never going to go back to that role. So another technique we used was to network. So to sit down with your family or friends and just work out what you want to do, but then start, you're not asking for a job. You would approach people and go, well, what do you do? How did you get into that role? What's great about your job? What don't you like about your job? When you'd finish, you'd, as a good networking, you'd ask for a couple more people to talk to. This chap, man, was a lovely, lovely man. He had a good work ethic. He wanted to get back to work. He was just struggling obviously with having an injury and obviously finding direction. So while he was looking for work, mm-hmm. he kept himself busy by doing some carpentry for a local garden. So it was a community garden. So yeah. he built like tables and chairs and a trellis, which is something he had done back in his home nation in one of the Pacific Islands when he was younger. And he was doing that and he actually got some recognition from local council for the work he put in. Yeah. But as he was talking to someone in his family, they said, oh, would you be interested in a job as a cabinet maker? I've seen your carpentry work. And he went, yeah. So we found him a great job with a really good company and that came about from him just talking to other people getting on the community doing that volunteer work with that mm-hmm. community garden and demonstrating he had the skills and abilities to um do woodwork or cabinet making mm-hmm. so that's how we found his job so i think 
from that, both those examples is that instead of just yeah thinking about that narrow template that's often applied to an injured worker is that if you can think outside of that, think about what they do, you, you will uncover different aspects of their personality history that may consider for a job elsewhere. And, but this is what I find really interesting, right? And I know you mm. and I have spent hours talking about yeah. this. I don't do vocational rehabilitation, but I know a lot of people who yeah. do have been around in the industry long enough to sort of understand a little bit about it. I would assume that that's what a vocational assessment was to identify the most appropriate job options for them. Where are workers and injured workers being let down by rehab providers in that sense? Look, I find sometimes it's the fact that it's more, it becomes that sort of make someone conform to a template, tick a few mm-hmm. boxes, just go from there. Yeah. I know some rehab companies do have a good practice around job seeking, but others probably don't have the practice that's well developed. The quality of the service may not be up to what other ones are. I think too, we had the advantage to coming from getting experience from a job services provider. There are some challenges there, um, obviously, but having that experience um, and with a company that had a good reputation and a good um, track record of innovation mm-hmm. just brought something a little bit different. And I think I spoke something else about thinking outside the usual. We just did a few things that were different that hadn't probably been considered. It was intensive and, and probably that may be one thing that might prevent it from taking up root is that it, it takes a bit of time. You have to have intense conversations with the injured worker on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. A lot of what you're doing is building up their uh, resilience and capability. You're sitting down with them and working through what they need to do to overcome barriers. You'll find barriers, a financial situation can be a big impact on motivation. Yeah, I remember one of our guys just um, filling up someone's car. We had a bit of spending that we could use as we saw fit, and that was about making sure people get to interviews. That that exists now as well in system. Like we're here in New South Wales, we're able to <laughs> use, I think it's like T1 or T2 funding stuff. I was working with somebody and he needed, uh, I think it was some clothes for an interview, like just, some, just <laughs> a nice collared shirt. And we were able to use some funding model within CIRA to give him those things. Oh, so- they exist, but are people using it? Yeah, well, that's the thing. They exist. And the question is, again, we go back to experience. I was working with a vocational rehab consultant who has been around for 15 years and knew about that. The model that you use with the self-determination theory, actually asking people what they want to do and really taking the time to be intensely involved in understanding what their motivations are mm. or actually empowering them to almost uncover what their motivations are. Let's talk time. How much time, say one of the truck driver that you spoke about, how mm. much time do you think from a hours perspective would you have spent? I remember it was a couple of months and we try and meet up every week. Okay. The idea was this. It's an intensive approach. So it does take time. It does take involvement. So if you're trying to apply sort of a rehab case management model, it's going to be pricey. If you just did by an hour, right? And that's obviously an issue for everyone is, you know, how do you um, justify the time and investment? Um, well, when you get someone a job, I mean, yeah. I mean, how do you justify that? Easy, you get an outcome that suits everybody. Okay, so as a claims manager, Sean, what was mm. the most expensive rehab cost that you, you saw? 30, 40K. I saw one recently that was, I think it was like 30K mm. and no outcome. Here it could be right service, right time is we're going to invest $30,000 on something that will potentially 
have a better outcome, more intensive. We're throwing money there already. Like New South Wales Workers' Comp is the Wild West right now. Mm. We're throwing money out there, people making six-minute phone calls, but not actually having any substance or value in what they're billing. I don't think it's going to be a cost issue. I think it's about using using the funding really, really well, like really, really well. Value for money is what it is. And it goes back to what I said about how we, we don't really understand motivation that well in the New South Wales scheme. Mm-hmm. The most common thing you hear is that, oh, we have the um, 13-week step down. Mm-hmm. You'll hear that people go, oh, yeah, well, they'll motivate that person to go back. It doesn't. doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. There are two studies I know that looked into that. I think they found a very weak effect forward one and a possibly a slightly negative weak effect. So the effects of that step down, I think, are very weak. Um, yeah. If you're totally unfit, it's not going to do anything to you mm-hmm. uh, because you probably got, by then, your injuries going to be prolonged it might just convince someone who might be on 14 hours a week to nudge up to 15 hours mm-hmm. that's probably that's the only person that but it's not going to nudge them from 14 hours to full-time hours and then pre-injury no. duties no. <laughs> no. look so i think the um impact of weekly benefits is um overstated on motivation mm-hmm. and again it goes back to what I said earlier, that's intrinsic motivation you're being forced you're getting a, a stick the stick mm-hmm. is you're going to lose your you know, 20% of your PLE. Yeah, the side of motivation is you'll hear someone say this worker's not motivated. Look, and there are some who just for whatever reasons are not going to engage with, with the program. Mm-hmm. There are relatively few. I think a lot of it is just because the system is not allowing that worker, giving the right, the right support for that person to explore what they need to do or how they need to return the work. Return the work's different for everybody. Yeah. You'll get people who just get into the program, bang, this mm-hmm. right away. They're the ones we love. They've got that internal drive. Um, they've probably got a bit of, I don't know, I won't say emotional or intellectual capacity to navigate the system and understand what needs to be done. Other people just find the system to be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And it can be. But when I think people say they're not motivated, I would say, well, is it possible that we haven't given the right stimulus to motivate them, to allow them to build their own path out of return to work? You give them a say in what type of work they're going to be doing. You know, make sure they're comfortable. And often they just appreciate that you've given the opportunity to go, yeah, I can do this, I can do that. If you find an issue, okay, you might need to do a bit of negotiation between the parties to get it resolved, but at least yeah. you know what the problem is. Yeah, um, and, and I think that's where it comes back to the all we're doing as rehab professionals is holding a compassionate space for this person. Mm to be able to engage with us as comfortably as possible and then building, helping them build a support structure. You're right. I could say, oh, well, if you don't do this, this is going to happen. If you don't do this, this is going to happen. Like, so that consequence carrot yeah. or that carrot stick situation, that's the wrong way to do anything. I think it's time that the industry realized that that is the wrong way to do anything. On top mm. of that, the tick box cookie cutter approach is kind of as if when the toll booths disappeared on the M4, every rehab provider out there said, oh shit, that, that's one less vocational option that I can copy and paste now. Mm. And let's be real. We've read a lot of vocational assessment reports, you and I, and some of them are absolute rubbish, absolute garbage, copy and paste jobs, no insights, no <laughs> real opinion, no real recommendation. It's because I've got to get this report done in six hours. It's going to take me a little bit longer than that. So I'm just going to cheat. I'm going to call out my peers about this. In saying that, there are some fantastic vocational rehabilitation consultants out there in great companies. There's so many rehab consultants, so many different companies out there, but your program came against some kickback. Because I think we're all doing a lot differently and we weren't applying that approach. We, yeah, 
<laughs> got to a point where I said, we'll just politely not really worry about reading vocational assessments if you want or in the claim. <laughs> I think in hindsight, it would have worked well with rehab. There was some preliminary discussion with rehab providers, mm-hmm. but didn't quite work out and look like I understand why. I think closer to the end of the program, we probably, yeah, there's probably some things that could have been done differently in setting the program up with eye care and we could have worked very well for a rehab provider to do some of that job seeking stuff for them. So um, it's one of those things, it's sort of newish, revolutionary, trying to change something. Yeah. And you, we're not going to get it perfect the first time around. It's unfortunate that you didn't have a chance to evolve that program. If you had $1 billion to invest into the workers' compensation system, personal injury, to revolutionise it. What do you think would make the biggest difference? Measuring well-being as a return <laughs> to work metric. And I know a lot of people think that's a bit airy, fairy or <laughs> Many years ago, I did the grad, I did the grad cert in um, personal injury management. I did a whole paper on um, return to work metrics. Incredibly exciting, fascinating. I could bore you for hours about it. But <laughs> yeah, and talk about return to work durations, how we measure it. And obviously, we use a minister of measures, the insurers, obviously, um, KPIs around that. And they serve a purpose. Yeah, if, if we see that over the general scheme of things, that return to work durations are improving, that's a great thing. It's good for the scheme, it's good for workers, it's good for employers. I think the problem is, is that we're just measuring a statistic says this person got back to PIDs. Mm-hmm. Are they actually happy? Do they sustain that PIDs? What about the people who stay totally unfit? And what we actually did in that project, we found that we could build a metric around their well-being. I think that was something that was quite revolutionary and I'd love to see someone go further with that because you could see that if their well-being was increasing, mm-hmm. asking your worker, have you visited a friend within the past 30 days? We never asked that and we don't realise a lot of them become quite isolated, isolate themselves from their spouse to a degree. That sense of shame, shall yeah. we say, about having yeah. a claim, not being able to discuss it with friends. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's a very male thing. I do a bit of other stuff in men's mental health as a volunteer and I'm a big advocate for men talking to men about what's actually going on. Yeah. But there's also cultural things as well. We're yep. dealing with a lot of different cultures now, especially in Western Sydney. And that's what the project was fantastic on. I learned a lot about how to navigate or understand inside of some different cultures about how they how it would affect someone has workers' comp claim. So we always think about the return to work outcome as the, yeah. the measure. Though if you if you actually start to incorporate well-being in on that, could it be possible that someone who is unfit for work is actually measured? really well on well-being. There are some people out there who had an injury. It might not be as debilitating or as affecting their life as much as we assume that it is. They're actually pretty happy being at home, spend more time with their family members, with their friends, because they're not spending 10 hours at work. I'm just curious, and this is just my head going, I'm just curious to see if you were to incorporate that, what that metric might, it might not be what we think or what we expect it to be. Are we we just all assuming that injured workers' lives are ruined? But maybe there are some people there who kind of go, actually, I get to pick up my kids from school and that's really nice and that's a well-being metric. That's And I'm sure that you've come across clients where that's happened where someone's mm-hmm. gone, oh, yeah, and they've moved into a different role. Obviously, from a scheme perspective, that's a challenge to mm-hmm. move, but then you might find another path to return to work from that allows them to do that. I think, yeah, 
going to how work has changed over the past two years. Yeah. There's a lot more flexibility in certain jobs. Though I think as well in understanding what that that is an element of motivation and intrinsic yeah. motivation, right? Like if we're saying to somebody, go back to work, go back to work, but we're not understanding that they're probably enjoying time with their family or they're enjoying mm. time doing hobbies and because they really disliked their workplace environment or there was some sort mm. of something going on there. That's so important to know because then again, you're just trying for a goal that will never, ever happen. Oh, look, and I think that's, that's a really good insight is that sometimes, and that's what we found was digging into what's really going on in our life, mm-hmm. you worked out how to approach the return to, and this, we're talking about job seekers, so obviously probably clarify, we're talking about 60 weeks, 120-week claims. Most injuries are going to go back within a couple of months. That's yes. a separate thing. Um, yeah. As probably clarified, we're talking about longer-term claimants. And yeah, and you do find that some some of them do change that role. Yeah, some might find that my spouse isn't working; they've adopted that role, looking after the kids, enjoying the other parts of their life, mm. which is is not work or related to work. And that's the tricky thing as either a case manager or a consultant or anyone is how do you navigate that mm-hmm. and provide them that pathway back because they do need to go back to work. Remember, it's a workers' compensation scheme, so we obviously yep. got to find that path, but. How do we do it where it just become pretty much butting heads Yeah, and using reports to go, well, this person, they're not motivated to go back to work. Actually, found the right role, they'll be more than happy to go back to work. You've been in compo for a long time now. So I had this misconception that people don't stay in compo for a very long time, though I'm starting to really run into more and more people who've been in it for as long as I have. And I'm always intrigued as to why do you stay in this world which is so complex can be such a brain fuck can really take everything away from you and make you see the worst of humanity no people not working within the spirit of the system when all we're trying to do is help somebody what Mm. makes you stay (laughs) yeah it was funny just what you said as i was thinking the other day it's like um i keep running into the same people which is good in a lot of ways. And sorry, go off tangent. We talk about the turnover, at least when people mm-hmm. are in the scheme, is that one thing I've seen being a scheme for a long time is that there are still a lot of people who are still in here after 10, 15, 20 years. So obviously people do hang around. Personally, I just like working through the problem solving, the challenges of return to work and making things work better. Yeah, I think it's a great satisfaction to have to start a return to work program with someone and see them go back to work. Most people that I speak with when I do ask them that question, has the same answer for everything that could potentially go wrong for every hurdle for every challenge Mm. it all just goes away when someone just says to you and looks at you and says hey thanks yeah our job is redundancy i'm the last person that anybody wants to ever hear from like i'm the phone Mm. call that you don't ever want to have um because something really terrible has happened in your life if i'm calling you and introducing myself as ria the rehab consultant Mm. i think there's a consciousness that we need to have as rehab professionals and when we are engaging with with people who have had an injury so remember this is a really bad time Mm. don't make it worse for them and i had I had, a, I had experience recently where somebody had an experience with another rehab professional and I walked into the room and he was so flustered because of this 10-minute conversation that they had and it was very adversarial and it was very mm. accusatory and it was he felt like he was being interrogated. Now, yes, I'm going to be asking very similar questions, but there's a way that we do that and there's a way mm. to hold space and be compassionate. So I think the question here is, 
for people, someone who's been around and we speak about churn and we speak about 20% of people out of insurers sort of turning and, and leaving, mm. what advice would you have for somebody who has just walked into ABC, scheme agent, insurer, call it EML, Alliance, whoever, what is the wisdom that you would impart on them? <laughs> oh. So, so that they do make it to the, they do make it to the 15, 20 year mark. Yeah, I think the first thing is, like you said, yeah, I like the word empathy, you like the word compassion, is never lose sight of that. You will deal with people who will test you um, in various <laughs> ways. And we all know that. We all, we all have our, um, yeah, we all have stories about where we go, we just don't know what's going on. Despite, yeah. yeah, despite all the best efforts. But if you keep sight of that and realise that you're doing this job to help people, and I think uh, Rosemary Mackenzie Ferguson says this, if you're keeping sight that the best outcome is one where the, both the worker and the employer are happy, mm-hmm. if you keep focusing on that, you'll be fine. You've got to have a bit of a thick skin. You've got to have people calling up and having a go at you. I think the other thing too is, obviously it's easy to say for you and me because we've been here so long, <laughs> is think outside the box. Mm-hmm. Bend the rules. Mm-hmm. Don't necessarily think because something is done a certain way, it can't be done another way. It's, it's one of the things where in hindsight, it's so easy to say that. I, you know, I had generally most of my career email pretty good support. And I think you've got to be a people person. Yes. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what I was saying about what are the right qualities for a case manager. Mm-hmm. You've got to have some sort of desire to help people. Probably sounds a bit, you know, Hallmark card, lovey-dovey, but... Um, <laughs> That's what it yeah. basically comes down to. You ask anybody in, in this type of yeah. industry, I just want to help someone. And if, you, if that's not your immediate go-to intuitive answer leave yeah and you touched upon um having when you were emailed that support network and i cannot stress that enough to anybody who's new in industry or even anyone who's old in industry is to have a network of people that you can fall into and i have a beautiful safety net i mean i know i call you random Mm. like can you just tell me what (laughs) this actually means i don't understand this and you know i do the same for you and i think it's important to build that network what you touched on is a really great thing is networking and i think sometimes you know if i was a young case manager fresh case manager shouldn't say young because they don't necessarily young in industry young Mm. in the industry is start finding out who the people talk to um you know rehab providers if you find a rehab consultant who's good was happy to give you the odd free phone call, which I know they would do. One of the best things is there was a couple of um, solicitors that we dealt with. Mm-hmm. If I needed to call them, I'll give them a call and go, I need advice. And they'll go, yep, what do you need? And I'll give you a quick rundown. And look, I even still talk to some of them now because you find that a lot of people are more than happy to sit down at the right time and have a chat to you and give you advice. So as a fresh case manager, I'll be saying build those mutually beneficial relationships. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, and it's collective knowledge and it's shared knowledge because we can't know everything about everything. And mm-hmm. the only way you're going to be able to try to build as much of a knowledge base as you can is a library of people. I mean, yeah. I have a library of people. I'm I'm one of the I'm one of the books in that library and people ask me random questions about rehab and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And that's not just people within industry. That's my friends, my friends' friends, my family, mm-hmm. like to the, all the young in industry people. We we have screwed up so often and for so long in this industry. So learn from us, learn from the mistakes that we have made. So because then you can start off at a better point than, than we did. No one lays awake at 4 a.m. in the morning thinking, yeah, well, I'm going to go on the work today and really stuff something up. <laughs> <laughs> we all make mistakes. We've, I think everyone's been in, in workers' comp can go back through. I wish I did that better. I wish yeah. I hadn't done that. Oh God, that was 
Yeah. Um, that was a disaster, but you learn from it. Is there anybody at the moment who you think is revolutionising anything in compensation? The two things which I think are really great, I've seen over the past six months, are both Luke McGrath's independent med management and Lauren's claim, Lauren Dredge's claim pharmacy. I think they're yeah. two really valuable services I never had as a case manager. And we know that some people are not getting the right medication, especially when it comes to um, heavy-duty drugs mm-hmm. um, and I think both and I'm not going to say one's better than the other they're both good people I work with Lauren and Luke's a good black so yeah. yeah shout out to both of them I think they are a fantastic resource that one of the hardest ones is what do you do when you get someone who's been on a cocktail of drugs for six months to a year and you know that it's doing them no good, but the doctor just keeps, whatever reason, keeps prescribing that. And, I mean, um, I spent I spent two episodes with Lauren talking exactly about yeah. that medication problem that we're having um, and, and what Claims Pharmacy is doing. But, uh, Luke, if you're listening, uh, give me a call. <laughs> I will be very happy to give you a space here on the podcast. We always want to celebrate the great humans out there, um, and I can't be across everybody and everything, so um, I'm always really happy to find people through networking and, yep. and being social and being humans. I was just going to give one shout-out too. Oh, go, yes. Uh, I was going to say, last year I did spend a little bit of time, I attended the change room yes. as a guest, and I must say that program is quite revolutionary as well. I think it has a very good approach to developing well-being. And, yeah, I really was grateful they gave me the opportunity just to spend two days sitting in the room with some injured workers and understanding how the program works. Yeah, I think that's another good program out there that has a lot of potential. The thread here, uh, Sean, is all these companies that we've mentioned, what we've been talking about, mm. is we have a diagnosis, which is an injury and what that is. Mm. Though what we're asking industry to do, does just look a mm. little bit beyond that. We're not even asking for this giant miracle. We're just asking people to think outside of that very narrow highway. And when you're looking at Luke and what Lauren's doing and what the change room is doing, what you're what you know, the previous company that you were working mm. with was doing, when you think about it, it's actually a really simple concept of looking beyond a diagnosis. Yeah. Now, what the complex part of that is, then how do you do the measurements and the metrics and how does that all fit into the really bureaucratic system that we have of measuring how well yeah. a professional is performing? Final question while we're mm. here is... Um, what did you do for fun recently that's only for you? Went saw um, fantastic young American blues guitarist Christine Kingfish Ingram at the Factory Theatre last Wednesday. <laughs> yes. So, and I stayed in a city, so I booked myself into a room. I thought, no, have a few beers, check out some blues, and then have a five-minute stroll to work in the morning. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was done for purely done for me but it's really nice to be out I think obviously during lockdown as someone who likes to play music live music's fantastic and it's mm-hmm. good to see it back have a great night caught up a few friends I hadn't seen for a while that's awesome and yeah. if people wanted to find you Sean to just connect with you you're always so generous with the time that you give mm. to people I mean for me personally you're always there for for a chat and a call and and someone who's very close in my network of people. Mm. But if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way? I'm on LinkedIn, so just send a message. I'm always happy to chat to anyone about anything really. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, I think um, there's a nice group of people in Workers' Comp. They've been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, some of us do stay, so it can't be that bad. Can't be that bad. And it'll be nice to see, yeah, it'll be nice to see the industry get to a point where it is considered to be a good career. Yeah. I'm actually I'm actually looking forward to the time when people 
stop kind of falling into this industry? You can do rehab. You can have a good career in an insurer. Mm-hmm. You know, I've ended up in the broker space doing consulting for a company that's been very supportive. Mm-hmm. So there's all this little different niches you can fill. It just takes that bit of time and effort. And always there needs to be some improvement maybe about getting people into your industry and making sure they're supported. And I think you do a great job of that through mentoring people as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, and maybe it's what we need is a bit more of a mentorship, mentorship Well, program. if you ever want to jump onto the 3-6 mentoring program, we will happily take you on board. Two books I wanted to mention about motivation. First one is Drive by Daniel Pink. And the second one is Why We Do What We Do by Edward L. Desi. They're two ones that have really been helpful to me in understanding motivation. Again, Sean, so generous with your time always. So thank you so much for coming on to the Intelligent Rebellion podcast. Thank you. And uh, we will stick all the stuff that we spoke about all in the show notes with the link so that anybody can um, reach out to you and see where Luke and Lauren in the change room and all that type of stuff is. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we close down this episode? No, thank you very much for having me on. I do appreciate it. You're most welcome, Sean. Thank you. Bye. The Intelligent Rebellion podcast is brought to you by Three Sticks. My name is Ria Mercado and I am your host. Our producer is Will.